You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Future Friday. Today we are talking, well, I am talking with Ben Walsh from Tiger's Jaw. Ben Walsh is a very old friend of mine. Uh, Tiger's Jaw is one of my favorite bands, and they are some of my favorite people to tour with. They make incredible music, and it was such a pleasure to talk to him. You can listen to I Won't Care How You Remember Me, their newest record, which just came out, uh, wherever you listen to records. And better yet, you can buy it from them. That would be that would be fantastic, wouldn't it? Now, I am actually cousins with Ben Walsh, besides being super old friends. We didn't discover that until we had already known each other, but we are, in fact, distant cousins. And we today we get into... Uh, what the future of music is looking like. We talk a bit about Scranton. We talk a bit about touring. I talked to Ben about his background as a speech-language pathologist and just having a grand old time. So without further ado, Ben Walsh. Good magazines. Yeah, there's a, a, a waiting room for this app that we're using. And uh, yeah, we're funny guys, huh? Uh, thank you so much for doing this with me today. I really, really appreciate it. It is indeed St. Patrick's Day, although I believe this will come out on Friday morning. Uh, I got my first round of vaccine shot like an hour and a half ago. So if I if I stumble into ad reads for Microsoft Surfaces or start to start to look sick, just just let me know and we'll 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 stop it. <laughs> no, I think we should keep it rolling if that happens. <laughs> Actually you should definitely keep it rolling if that happens. But uh, yeah, man, we've known each other for so very long. We are, in fact, distant cousins, actually. Yep. Uh, the last U.S. tour that we did was with you guys. And there are so many different directions that we could go in in this conversation. I'm so very excited. But first, I wanted to ask you about practicing in a funeral home. <laughs> yeah. So uh, w- when our band started, we practiced in Adam's garage for, for a bit. And um, he had a neighbor who just would would call would call over every time we would practice or call the cops sometimes or whatever and uh and adam's parents even like soundproofed the garage and everything and probably spent a lot of money i was i was pretty unaware of how expensive that was at the time but anyway the the calls kept coming and then adam's grandmother lives above a, a funeral home which is very common in scranton uh there's about one on every other block it's a very scranton thing for sure and the, yeah, so uh, Adam was like, well, I think we can actually start practicing in the casket showroom. And we were just like, what? <laughs> Why is that a thing that we can do? Um, and he's like, yeah, well, they're downsizing. They're, they're you know, transferring these caskets into the, into the other room. Like, so there's going to be a, a, an open room for us in the, in the basement of this funeral home. And it was great. You know, it was, it was really secluded. It was on the corner of a, of a busy street. So like that we weren't getting noise complaints. Um, it just, every once in a while you'd walk in and at the top of the steps, the door to the embalming room would be cracked and you would see, uh, you know, a, a limb, uh, hanging out under the, the, the sheet. Uh, and that was a little freaky, but, um, <laughs> but all in all, it was a really great place to practice. And, you know, we, we used to record some stuff down there and um, it, it was, it was a really nice place to have. Uh, and it was just very interesting. It had a, it had a weird like vibe to it. Like you, you felt like you were in a place that, you know, was like a interchange of sorts for, <laughs> for souls, I guess. Um, <laughs> there was just a weird heaviness to the air. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, and I think, I mean, I think Adam still, has access to it. And I, I think maybe pay for pain 
rehearses down there still. Uh, I hope they do because it, wow. yeah, it's a great room. I hope so. Jesus, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, man. And it's funny how where you practice and where you write, it's, it seems like it would be a no brainer, but yeah, it informs the music that you're playing. Like when we uh, released our record Rented World, we wrote that in a crowded, cold warehouse up in Port Richmond that was surrounded by really loud metal bands. And then, you know, we ended up putting a bunch of heavier kind of guitar tones and riffs and tuned down and that just kind of spread out across our, our creative process. And I can't imagine what kind of aesthetic uh, you would create with for your songs practicing in a funeral home. Like that's that's amazing. And it is funny to think of how Scranton that is, uh, how we can like explain that to people who don't, who've never been to Scranton or didn't grow up there. There's funeral homes fucking everywhere. And I think it's uh, also like kind of, on brand for St. Patrick's Day to think about all the old wakes and how often we had seen dead bodies when we were coming up and then realized that other people don't have the same kind of Irish and Italian Catholic influenced death rituals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this the, this funeral home, you know, it was on the same block as a church. It was across the street from uh, a cemetery and there was a pizza shop next to that. And it was just all the all the Scranton stereotypes of, you know, all the Scranton like neighborhood geography stereotypes all in one. You put a bar uh, named after some guy on the corner and you're set. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm, I can't I'm trying to think what the nearest bar there was. I'm sure it wasn't far. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is kind of at the beginning of you guys being Tiger's Jaw and, and you guys had a great balance, I think, of life and touring as you came up. And I want to get to that later, the way that you guys, you know, you're a very educated man. Uh, you guys were able to balance a lot of the school and music as frustrating it was. I'm going to save that for a bit. But do you remember when you decided that you wanted to be in a band, like when you decided that you wanted to do it? Yeah. Um, my So my cousin, Matt, played in a band called The Swims, and they were just like the the most interesting cool band like the, it was like a audio and visual experience when you would see them like they were like this really animated power pop band um saying that for the for the listeners not you tom because i know yeah. you're, you're well <laughs> well course. aware but I, I i had heard that my cousin matt was in a band and you know i hadn't seen him in a couple of years because he was in college and so the first opportunity i got i went to go see his band play. And I had, I had been to shows, you know, around, I probably had seen actually Bob and the Saggots and, and Cosmos mm-hmm. uh, a time or two right around that same time. Um, but, I, but I saw him play at the, it was called the jazz room. It was underneath the, the Scranton cultural center and yeah. the swims and this band called okay. Patty played. And it was just this like really incredible subculture of like the crossroads of art and music in the, in the Scranton scene. And it was usually something that would happen in you know in the 21 and above scene so it, this this happened to be an all ages show i just fell in love watching these bands play and they you know they didn't sound like the typical punk bands that that i had you know kind of been listening to at that time and i just saw like variation to what i was you know what i expected and saw that you know just it, it just opened my eyes to just like a lot a lot of new influences and i just wanted to do what he did like i just wanted to move people in that sort of way and uh that made me want to yeah start a band and play music hell yeah man there's something uh you know literally powerful about seeing that especially for the first times or seeing what happens when people are that you know so in this case it's framed by the fact that you know he's your cousin 
can play music and actually do it like you see on TV. You can go to a place and there's people dancing and, and going nuts and singing along. And that just becomes, at least for me, became so intoxicating. I was like, holy shit, I have to do this. This is the coolest thing ever. Yeah. When, I mean, I would get, you know, get songs or get riffs stuck in my head after seeing them play. And I'd be like, there's something so infectious to this. And it, you know, it inspires me not to want to do exactly what they're doing, but to do my version of what they're doing and and try to like find my own avenue in that sort of scene or that sort of world. So yeah, just totally. that, that just kind of kicked it all off for me. And then, yeah, there, there was at the time there was such a, you know, there was like the, the butt rock Scranton scene. There was the ska punk Scranton scene. And there was like that weird sort of like <laughs> art, art rock scene that was at certain points, they all kind of combined. Uh, but it was, it was such a cool and accepting and creative time, I feel like, and it, that sort of ebbs and flows, but you know, in, in that sort of formative time for me, there was, it just seemed like there was so much cool art being made in Scranton. Dude, totally. And that was in my mind, a huge advantage to, to both of our bands, as far as it being a smaller place. I mean, it's not super small and I have a complex about that and people are like making fun of how small Scranton is. I just come <laughs> in with the facts. Well, actually, but uh, no, it was, it was big enough to have different scenes, but there wasn't such a big punk scene that there was gatekeeping or that there was, you know, older people gatekeeping or that there was a, a infrastructure of a scene that you had to kind of fall in line to. So you, we could go to these art indie shows and then we learned that we could do that too. We can incorporate those elements into our music. It's funny you mentioned the jazz room. One of the first all ages shows I ever went to was down in the jazz room. And I remember walking down the steps. Everyone was getting hammered. I was too young. I wasn't, you know, drinking heavily at that point. I was probably like 15 or something. But the first person that went on was Connor McGuigan in a, he had no shirt on, had leather pants on and was doing a puppet show with makeup on, dumping yingling all over himself and everywhere else. And all the punks were like freaking out. All the bands were having such a good time. And I was like, Dan, this is wild. And we're in the basement of a, of a, an insane and breathtaking Masonic temple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, you never knew what you were going to see at like at those shows. And, and Connor started the venue test pattern. I, I went, I, I had met Adam McAwee a few times. He had you know played in ska bands and then he had a like sort of an indie rock project called the Triphones and I would go see them play as well. But uh, he told, he told me, probably through a MySpace message that he was playing at this place called Test Pattern. So I went to go see him and he was opening up for this this like indie rock band called The Minor White. And it was in the basement of Test Pattern, but way before there was any stage or anything, it was just like a, you know, like a bit, like a unfinished basement. Storefront, right? Yeah. And uh, and he, he played acoustic by himself. And uh, I think he played like a super early version of what would become a, a a Tiger Shaw song later a- after that show, he was like, we should start a band. And that's basically the genesis of, of Tiger Shaw was like this solo acoustic show that Adam played at test pattern. It, that no shit became such a special place for, you know, and then it, it had went through a bunch of different phases and had different owners and things, but we would always be able to throw really cool, diverse shows there from, you know, from the time it opened until, unfortunately, I think we were one of the last bands to play there. No kidding. Yeah, it was that uh, one thing that was great about Scranton was test pattern and the ability to have all ages shows. There were a lot of places that, you know, were able to be rented cheaply uh, or seemingly cheaply. What the fuck do I know? It's probably super expensive. We actually rented one of our practice spaces from the company at one point. I had this like screen printing business and we had our practice space in it and we built a stage and it was 
next to the Sun Hotel underneath a Dominican grocery store. And they charged us way too much money. But it was like the Scartellis, I think it was. And they would always <laughs> be coming in and out doing wild ass shit. But yeah, that is one of the greatest parts about growing up in a, in a town like Scranton. And, and, a, and a close friend of mine, uh, shout out Tim Zahotsky, you know, of course, whom you know, who's our, our, our Menzinger's manager, brought up a good point when I was talking about doing uh, this Scranton Central art project that, that we're working on. And that is that there are a million Scrantons all over the country. So I, I was like, yeah, it's going to be too focused on Northeastern Pennsylvania. But he's like, no, you have to remember a lot of people grew up this way and grew up in towns that were just like it. And while I do think ours is extra special, I know that, you know, there's it, it makes brings me great joy to think of, of there being thousands of test patterns all over the country, which I, I really hope I hope is the case. Yeah, I mean, you could see a show there. You could see an art gallery opening there. They yeah. had these things called drawing socials where a band would come and play for like two or three hours and, and artists would just draw them while they played. They had, you know, these events called art wars where there was like two people got to go up and there was an empty canvas and the crowd would shout out things for them to paint. And it would be like this interactive crowd experience. Like there was, it was just such a Mecca of like weird culture. And there was like, uh, everything was like all about acceptance and like, kind of like supporting all aspects of the scene that were happening. It was like such a, such a beautiful thing that you, you don't really see all that often. Totally. And as you mentioned, all those different things, they all came rushing back to my memory. It's wild. They used to go to poetry readings there quite often yeah. uh, with a couple of friends of mine that would read poetry and we'd sit there and they would bring in poets that were visiting at the University of Scranton or they were just passing through. And, you know, you get to see a lot of really impressive shit. I just had a flashback to actually a time, I believe it was Greg shaking me out of the bathroom at test pattern because we were playing at the bog on parade day which is one of the top five largest saint patrick's day parades in uh, <laughs> the country which scranton's population doubles or triples and it turns into an insane drunken debauchery but we were meant to play at the bog and we did but i was wasted at test pattern way too drunk but it was yeah it's all just kind of flooding back yeah well, so much happened on that block Dude, so much happened. That's the 300 block of Adams Avenue, if anyone wants to to indulge. One thing that aesthetically comes across in your guys' artwork and one thing that you've talked about, one thing I know you're a huge fan of is baseball, and more specifically, Red Barons baseball or the AAA team in Northeastern Pennsylvania. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what draws you to that. Yeah, I think it was just really an important thing to me growing up. Like, I, I played baseball when I was a kid. I, you know, it was... Uh, this big connection to my dad, um, you know, he would take me and my brother out all the time and, you know, hit, hit us fly balls and ground balls and whatever. And it was just like a, like a bonding thing and like everything cool, like about sports. I'm not a super competitive person and I'm not like a, like a super competitive sports team fan. Like I, I'm not like, out there championing for any sort of team, but there was something special about the Red Barons. They just, it, you know, it was the local Scranton Wilkes Bear team. The games were so cheap, the food was so cheap. Like you could just make such a fun outing out of out of it. Uh, they had a great mascot uh, called the Grump. <laughs> the Grump. I just, you know, I had a lot of, I think, formative experiences. Like field trips were there, and I, I just, I you know, bonded with, with my dad, with, with again, my cousin, Matt, and it, it just became some, something, I don't know, something cool. And then they, uh, it was the Phillies triple A team 
And then uh, in about 2006, the the Yankees bought the, the franchise and had their AAA team there, but they were literally just called the Yankees at first. And so there was no local identity. There was no like, yeah. there, there was no personality to the team. And such a bummer. When people stopped happened. going. Yeah. People stopped going unless like Alex Rodriguez was playing a rehab game there or something like that. So they again changed, <laughs> changed the name to the Rail Riders, which at least is like a nod to the, you know, like the, the, the train and railroad industry in, in Northeast PA. But, but yeah, it yeah. never kind of re, recaptured that magic. But anyway, uh, I, I grew up always going to flea markets and yard sales and, thrift stores and stuff like that. So every time I see any bit of like Scranton history or like specifically any Red Baron's gear, I always pick it up and I have like a, a pretty, a pretty good collection of, of, of things. Uh, I have like a small piece of the original AstroTurf in a little box that's authenticated. <laughs> uh, I have a, a couple of different stuffed animal Amazing. grumps. I have some jerseys, some t-shirts, a bunch of hats, backpacks, things like that. So it, it's just been a fun thing to, to kind of like collect and, you know, have a little bit, have a little shrine to an old bit of Scranton history. I love it. I love how much the Red Barons and the Triple A team became a cultural rallying point and anchor for the for the area. You, you have some really funny connections to it as well. So one of the best parts you mentioned it when when A Rod or somebody would come down from the majors. So it's Triple A team, which is right below the majors. So anytime somebody got hurt or probably behaviorally in trouble at some times. And I think just to get the numbers up, people would rotate down to AAA. So if someone was visiting from the, you know, the Giants AAA team, there'd be a star there and everybody would go to the game and they would always send Phillies players down to kind of, to kind of do it. We would always wait for their autograph by the stadium club. And one time I got Mickey Morandini's autograph on a baseball glove. It was pretty sick, but I actually won a lottery when I was probably 11 or 12 and I was a bat boy. With uh, with another with an older kid who was probably like fifteen. You got the shadow. You got the shadow of Bat Boy. I got the shadow of Bat Boy. Yeah, <laughs> for half the game, and then there was another kid who won the lottery who did it the other half of the game. But it was it was wild. And then I actually ended up working there all throughout high school. So anytime it would rain and they needed people to go, you know, run and roll the tarp out, that was me. Uh, and then I ended up working my way up to becoming the manager of Stand One, which is like the big concession stand. So think about this company that would pay everybody like $6.50 <laughs> teenagers to run this entire thing and the stupid shit that went down. One time a, a friend took a ladle and he's like, yo, watch this. And he takes the fryer oil and he throws it onto the flaming grill, which started a grease fire. And then he <laughs> tried to spray it with a hose, which splattered the grease fire everywhere, which shut down the stand for the rest of the day. And then they fired everyone who was working regardless of what they did. And they hired everyone back the next day. So many funny memories at, uh, at that stadium. We got to organize this bus trip we rally back up and try to, try to, try to relive it. It's been a few years. We, we did that. <laughs> you know, you, you organized it. To, yeah. We to, called to those listening. Like, exactly. Uh, we, we put, we got a group rate. We got a, a good group of, of, uh, of people and we tailgated out in the parking lot. And then, you know, during the sixth inning or whatever, when they announced all the groups that are there, they announced us as the, the Red Barons. <laughs> as the old team name during the, during the new team's game. It's amazing. <laughs> Man, so I could go on about Scranton forever, but I wanted to talk to you about, so you are educated and, and fully on a, a speech language pathologist. Is that, is that correct? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not practicing. Sure. And, and it's been a few years since I've been immersed in, in the, in the world of it. But, uh, but yeah, I, I went to, to Marywood 
University in Scranton and did a did a five year master's program in speech language pathology. This was you know at the time b- before Tiger's job was a full time thing, and basically right when I finished my all my internships and clinical fellowship uh, is is when we started touring full time. So there there was a, a brief moment where I was working very intensely in the field and get, you know, getting direct experience. And it it was basically like a, like a year long paid internship and it was great. I loved it, but it it was just one of those things where it was like, I can't sustain both of these, you know, at the same time, I I can't have the band, you know, we were getting a lot of opportunities and there's nothing more challenging and simultaneously rewarding than following the ambition of, of being in a band, trying to make a living doing it, trying to just pay the bills and, and be able to travel the world and play music. Like those are experiences that, you know, maybe have a, a shelf life and you kind of have to like pursue yeah. it when you can. Otherwise, like I, I knew I would have regretted it forever if I was like, no, nah, I'm just going to play it safe and, and, you know, get the, get the normal job and play music kind of on the side. Um, so it was definitely a leap of faith, but, uh, but yeah, I, I know I would have definitely regretted it if I didn't. Yeah. And I have to say as your friend and as a, a huge fan of Tiger's job, I'm really glad that you, that you dove in afterwards. <laughs> That's, uh, you're doing a great service to the world. But, uh, so my sister is, is a practicing speech language pathologist and I, I hit her up to get a little bit of uh, a better understanding of kind of, you know, how it works clinically and, and what's going on and stuff. And I'm not going to ask you any of the highbrow questions that she sent over me because I don't understand them very well. But <laughs> well, I, do, <laughs> I, so, I do understand basically what the gist is. And I wonder, there has to be an intersection between helping someone uh, express themselves and be able to work these communication tools and music, which you're directly communicating with someone. So I wonder if there's a mindset that you get into where those two things cross. Yeah. Well, I, I was attracted to speech pathology because of like, you know, the, the general, like it's science and English kind of all wrapped up together. And it's, you know, it's, it's a service that's helping people. And I was always kind of attracted to the um, developing delayed skills rather than the the rehabilitation side of it. You know, there's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different aspects to it, but uh, I mean, two two of the main ones that I did like internships in was I, I worked uh, with with adults in like a assisted living facility, and a lot of that is like maintenance of of speech skills and maintenance of of memory skills for people with early onset dementia, and it's just you know it, it's it's totally different from the flip side of where my internship experience was in dealing with with kids with articulation delays or language delays you know in more of a in more of a school setting i i felt like that was more my my lane i really enjoyed working in the school setting and working on articulation therapy and language therapy with with kids and kind of like helping them develop these crucial communication skills cuz the the social aspect mm-hmm. of it you know when you're that young in school like is so important and kind of like fostering the ability to communicate in these kids as they're also being taught all these different subjects. And for me, like, you know, I definitely was, was bullied when I was a kid. And I know that uh, there's kids with speech impediments and speech and language delays that get, you know, teased in class and stuff. So I think that kind of struck a chord with me that was like, I I really want to, I really want to help kids and, and, you know, work with them on developing speech and language. Um, The the intersection between music, I I don't know. I, I don't know what exactly it is, but, you know, you're, you're breaking down 
communication to like its its like essence, you know? And if there's one application that always comes to my mind or one maybe, you know, tangential relationship and that is possibly fluency. So I think of how when we tour in Europe and South America like like you guys have and people will be able to, even if they can't speak the language we're using, they're able to, uh, with the timing of music and with the melody that goes with it, they're able to articulate these English words very well. And we've spoken to many people that said they've used it to learn English. Like uh, they've watched American TV shows or British TV shows or whatever and singing along to like rock and roll songs. There's this fucking guy. You guys had to have met him. Bronco. You ever meet Bronco from Serbia? No, I haven't. All right, so he's an older gentleman. He uh, was into punk rock in the early 80s and is now still. And he takes a train like fucking 12 hours anytime that we play anywhere near uh, Eastern Europe. So he he, one time we played in Slovenia and he brought his wife and his kids. And he's just like, you know, he's, he's a really cool dude. But he learned English to American punk records and he just fucking loves it. And I think that. I wonder what that musicality kind of does for people in their way to, uh, you know, express themselves. Yeah. Uh, when, when you apply music to, and rhythm to, you know, articulation, it's accessing a different side of your brain too. So, you know, it, it, it can help you learn in a different way to like train the muscles, to learn these different sounds, to, to form words, you know, even if it's not part of your native tongue i guess Mm -hmm. uh there's definitely an intersection it's it's hard for me to i think put a finger on it but did you uh here's one a side one i I can't imagine learning you know the physicality of speech and having to become mindful of all the different muscles and you know it's a deep subject all the different reasons why people speak the way that they do and not have it kind of kick back on yourself did you change the way you speak uh while you were learning all this stuff did you beat a nipa accent out of yourself (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, it definitely made me way more aware of it, you know, and, and I think when I've met people, you know, who, who kind of can pick up on different regional dialects and stuff, they're like, I can't, I can't really place you, you know, I can't really place uh, where yeah. you're from. And I'm like, well, if you knew the Scranton accent, that might come as a surprise because it is really strong. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very like lazy in its pronunciation. And uh, I think I just became very aware of all the sounds and and tried to like enunciate a lot more clearly, you know, and it, it's funny when I'm speaking off the cuff, I, I find like that I stutter quite a bit or, you know, lose, lose my train of thought or try to find the right word and get, you know, get caught up. It's, it's something that everybody does, especially if you're not, if you're speaking off the cuff, if you don't know, you know, you're not speaking off a, like, you know, like a script. So it, mm-hmm. it, it's just, it's an interesting thing, but yeah, as far as dialect that, maybe I would have to hear back like audio of me speaking like when I was younger. Dude, that's one of the funniest things of (laughs) editing these podcasts and editing podcasts that the band does for Patreon and editing. I've edited some other people's podcasts for them. I've always found a extreme infatuation with the nuances of dialect. So the regional dialect, cultural dialect, being able to hear little things that people say in English and being able to be like, that's you're from Chicago or you're Midwestern. That is no mistaking. Or you can pick off a one time we were on a hill in the middle of nowhere in Yellowstone National Park. And a guy from Bloomsburg just overheard us talking and was like, you guys are from Scranton, aren't you? I can tell by the way that you're that you're that you're speaking. But I th- find those things so fascinating. And one thing I, I, I always catch myself to bring it back to being in, in some other countries and stuff is. I, the empathetic component of dialect that whether you are consciously or subconsciously starting to mimic the speech of the people that are around you. So I, I remember 
<laughs> we have a good friend, our dear friend. I won't, I won't name him, but he went to Italy for like four months, and he said that he just ended up devolving into like a Borat esque uh, <laughs> la- uh, English language with everybody by the end because that's how they spoke English, so they were under- able to understand it that way. So I was wondering, if, you know, if, when I'm around my sisters, bless their souls, they do have uh, thick Nipa accents. Uh, that mine comes out way more. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At any time I'm around my family, my, my younger sister definitely has a pretty strong one. And, uh, you know, I'll catch myself saying things differently when I'm at, you know, back in Scranton for an extended amount of time. It'd be interesting to do a study on like, like sort of another strong accent. Like a lot of people from New York, for example, go to the university of Scranton. Right. So mm-hmm. it'd be interesting to see the intersection of like, you know, spending four years in Scranton and dealing with that. <laughs> dialect when you have maybe like a a strong New Yorker or like, you know, Long Island accent or something like that. Like there's, it'd be interesting to see. Totally. Uh, Yeah. That'd be so awesome. I would love to, uh, uh, to see the results of that study. That'd be (laughs) fantastic. So here we are this far into the pandemic, man. And it's starting to look a little bit better. I'm not going to jinx anything as far as framing by music, live music standards, which is what we, we want to do and what we need to do. How's it looking? Like what is, uh, what's going on? You know, people are, people are saying there may be shows before the end of the year, which feels so strange to think about. I think, you know, this far into it now, I'm like, what are shows? They're not a thing anymore. They're, you know, it's a thing <laughs> of the past. Am I even like, I, I try to think about mentally like gearing up to go on a six week tour. And I don't know if I can do, it's going to take a lot of like, mental re like reprogramming i think it's it's pretty interesting but yeah i think after like the the first six months of the pandemic where it was like oh all the shows are going to get pushed back a little bit pushed back a little bit to then being like okay no none of these tour like nothing's happening for god knows how long and we see all these amazing venues closing their doors permanently you know, uh, like a lot of, a lot of rooms that you and I have played plenty of shows at, you know, uh, they're not going to be there when, when touring resumes and, and that's scary. But I think, you know, it's going to be tough when shows start back up because everyone's going to want to tour and hopefully everyone's going to want to go see live music, you know, Uh, hopefully it kind of reinvigorates that desire to like go out and, and watch bands play maybe it'll be maybe it'll peak really hard when it starts and then kind of fall off again Uh Uh, or maybe maybe it'll provide like a much needed general boost to like the entertainment industry you know it's historically been very easy to be like uh no i'm not gonna go out i'm gonna stay home and do this instead of going to see that band play Oh yeah. There's a, a flip, uh, you know, imagine when you get home from tour, there's a flip where somebody's like, Hey, we're going to the show. Do you want to go? And you're like, no, that is the last <laughs> place that I want to go. But uh, now I think I'll be going personally. I feel like this is going to be a roaring twenties situation. I'm, I'm counting on it. Uh, I'm going to hope for it as much as I, as much as I already believe it. I feel like it's going to be fucking nuts. There's going to be tons of shows. I feel like, so I was listening to someone on a podcast talk about the changes in behavior that happened after the 19, uh, 18, 19, 19 so-called Spanish flu when the roaring 20s happened. I feel like people are going to increase sexual partners. I think there's going to be like an explosion of arts and music and attending them in person. Um, I know that we're so 
anchored to a lot of these digital technologies. And I think a lot, there will still be always a space for that. We're, I'm looking at you through a screen right now. And I can't <laughs> fucking wait to do the podcast in person again, because I'm about to switch to an interview format and I don't want to. Yeah, it, <laughs> I just like ask questions and it's like, how are we going to interchange this? It would be amazing. Oh my God. I can't fucking wait. Can't wait to play a poker night at your house again. That's going to be amazing. Yeah. But I am glad. One thing you touched on at the very beginning uh, when I asked about uh, coming back of music was you didn't use this word, but maybe the anxieties or uncertainties around going back to it. So there's there's one part. I'm no Louis Pasteur. All right. So I'm going to wait and see what people say. I know a lot of people have really hot ideas about how there will be no shows until December or will be completely open by May. And I don't want to listen to those people who have such an emotional investment or get angry. There's like people I know that are angry that bands are announcing shows in September. And I'm like, who, who the fuck are you? But <laughs> that that aside, I uh, know we're getting a lot of offers for the summer starting. Uh, we turned down one for June, which was a little bit too early for us. So we're trying to, you know, we'll figure out if we get some guidance from the federal, state and local governments. We'll see. We're, there's going to be shows this year, it seems like. Yeah. But there is an, an uncertainty and an anxiety about going back. I think about going on a six week tour and I'm like, no, <laughs> uh, I love to see people and I love to play shows, but gotten so used to I had a garden this last year, you know, and we're going to have one this year. I'm getting used to cooking and eating and sleeping in a bed and. Uh, a part of me, of course, I cannot wait to get the fuck out of here and go to a bunch of different cities and see all of our fans. But there, I wonder if my anxiety about doing a six week tour isn't wrapped up in the fact that a show is such a big deal for us a lot of times. And I don't, I'm like, how do I do it? I haven't done it in so long. So I wonder if there's going to be a lot of, uh, if it's going to be like riding a bike or if it's going to be like really fucking weird. Yeah, I, I know I get, I get a fair amount of performance anxiety, usually more so at the start of a tour. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't done this in so long. Like, do I, do I still have it in me like physically to like get up in front of people? I, I'm pretty shy. You know, I, I get nervous speaking in front of people. Like, yeah. uh, it, you know, it's always been something like I, I never intended to be sort of like a, a front person in a band. Um, <laughs> I, I was the drummer when Tiger Jaw started, you know, it, sure. I don't know how I got here, but, um, <laughs> it's it's a it's a strange it's a strange thing that i have to work through and you know uh, and it, and it never fully feels natural but but it is you know there there is enough there where it, it keeps me I, I love it it keeps me motivated you know it's like a it's like a welcome challenge i think you know but yeah i don't know if, if how that's going to feel like when we get back into doing shows like we've done a few virtual like performances and there's something that's a little bit different when you know sure. that like someone's hitting record and it's being broadcast, you know, and, and it's real. Like there's, there is like this switch that flips where you're, where it feels different than just like rehearsing or practicing um, even, even without the live audience in the same room. But, um, but yeah, nothing quite replaces that of actually playing a show in front of people and having that sort of interactive environment. I am very, you totally. know, cautiously optimistic that that we do get that sort of like roaring twenties burst of people. Like, I know if I could throw my phone in yeah. in the river and never look at it again, like I would love to do that. And and you know, <laughs> it's like stop being so reliant on technology. Um, and I was already feeling that way before the pandemic of just like you know being sick of sure. being on my phone all the time and. I do hope that we get back into like more appreciating live performance and not be so wrapped up in all these digital mediums. Totally. I have an Oculus Quest that I got a couple of years ago when it came out. I did a tour in the UK with Roger 
hard. Actually, no, it started before this. So a friend of ours, Toby from with Sidekicks is super into virtual reality. And we were hanging out at his house with no masks on getting wasted like two years ago. It was fantastic. We went to his room and he had a full computer set up for his virtual reality. And you sit there and it's so encompassing and fucking crazy that it blew my mind. I was like, I need to do this whenever I can. So I would go on tour. I went to VR places. Uh, Roger, Dave, and I went to a, a VR place in a basement in Camden in London that was run by some American students. They're like 21, but we get put in these curtained rooms. We're playing VR. Roger tries to sit on something that isn't in real life, falls <laughs> over, knocks the headsets. There's like shift flying all over places. It's great. But this pandemic has actually made me flip on how much I feel that that would be socially influential going forward i could just be growing into my old age but the amount of virtual things in the absence of being in real life social interaction of body language and people and moving it made me realize that this shit there's not even remotely a substitute like you can for me personally the live show aspect you need to be there and feel it and hear it and because part of it comes from all of the people that are around you even if you're just subconsciously smelling everyone's shitty pheromones or whatever it just <laughs> it gives you like whatever weird reason we don't know what it is yet it, it gives you an energy and it gives you a purpose uh you know it could be because we've been you know in groups of people for a hundred thousand since there's a beginning of people but it just seems like those virtual components like a vr meeting or for god's sakes a zoom meeting god. is just the one of the most soul crushing draining experiences that, that that you can kind of do if you have to do it every day yeah we, we are uh you know we're a social species and with all the inventions and technologies like we're actively like pushing away from that and figuring out how to remove the social component from all these things and now like you know, being forced into dealing with only the, like the digital version of whatever being a human is. It's like, all right, I, I appreciate what, you know, what I've been trying to get away from and I want to get back to that now uh, yeah. and, and have some actual like human connection again. God, I can't wait. I'm just like pining for it. So speaking of you guys just released a record, uh, you're not going to tour on it right now. Uh, there's nowhere that you could tour to. Maybe um, Texas. Maybe te maybe Texas. Maybe in like some little town in Texas. Because <laughs> you know we uh, were just talking to our booking agent, and none of the major cities they're all still close. You can't just like go to Austin and play right. a giant giant concert at at a, at a full capacity. So for us, normally when we're putting out a record, the entire thing ends up being hinged on the tour that we're going to do because of it first off because that's how you get paid and second off because that's like the physical manifestation of sharing the record with 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 people how are you guys uh navigating the press and the label excitement without the touring component are you coming up with other shit uh, it feels very foreign you know it was like we had this very immersive first week where we were all together and we were doing like uh virtual <laughs> virtual zoom in stores uh, yeah. which is such a strange thing, but they were really fun. Um, yeah, but you know, doing, doing a lot of press, doing these sort of performances, we premiered a full album playthrough on YouTube as a record release show. And then, yeah, just had this full on like December 26th blues feeling, you know, like it's all, <laughs> it's all over, yeah, exactly. you know, like wh what's next, you know, and you know, we, we, we had a longer album rollout than typical and we put a lot of that time and effort into making, you know, 
music videos in, in a very sort of DIY sense and putting a lot mm-hmm. of time and effort into producing this, you know, full album playthrough performance. Um, and, and, you know, that's yeah. all really great. Which I believe is still up. Is that correct? Yeah. It, it's up in perpetuity. We, we premiered it on the release day and we like, you know, we were in the chat room and everything. So there was the interactive component to it, but yeah, it's just, it's live, cool. live on YouTube. Uh, it will yet mixed and engineered and mixed it. So it's, it sounds really great. Uh, we had some mm-hmm. friends film it yeah. and Brianna edited all the video together. So it looks really cool, but yeah, like that doesn't replace doing a tour. It, it without that component of touring, it's, it's like, yeah, like what do we grab? What do we grab onto next? You know, like, uh, it's great, you know, hearing like people seem to be really responding well to the record and, you know, it's like we can track streams, but again, this is just like me looking at my phone all the time, like trying to measure how I think the record's going because of like statistics and numbers rather than like playing the songs in a room with, with people and like having this like actual interactive experience and, you know, like being able to like perform them in the way that we intended to and, uh, and, you know, to get to travel and, and, and spread, you know, spread the, like spread these songs around in, in a more organic way. Um, it's, it's really strange. That's such a huge point about uh, judging the success. Yeah. Yeah. Cause usually you get sort of like that immediate Sorry. feedback. Um, and ultimately like we make music cause we love making music and it's not necessarily about like pleasing the, the listener or definitely not pleasing like music writers. Cause who knows how to do that. But um, we, <laughs> as long as it starts from, from a genuine place and you, you're making art that you can stand behind and that you feel good about. And, and, you know, if it comes from that place, everything else is kind of secondary, but it is this really great thing that we get to do is, you know, put out a record and then go perform the songs for people in different cities and, and kind of get this immediate reaction. And like, yeah. you know, you, you write the songs and you arrange them and record them and then you get to perform them. And there's something special to that. It's like the, like the actual live performance of it. So we'll be ready to do it when the time comes, but it it definitely feels strange not having like that immediate, like, okay, the record's out. Let's get on the road and play some shows. Totally. Hell yes. Uh, And I, this is another like, you know, sad that it's gone, but I want to spin it into a, a positive light. And that is, of all the bands that we have toured with over these years, which is lots, uh, you guys are one of the most fun to tour with and you know how to have fun the most. It really seems like everybody in your crew is uh, very positive with the other bands that are on tour. You guys are always doing fucking karaoke and organizing cool, fun things to do. And I can't believe it was already a year and a half ago that we did. That was the last U.S. tour that we did was with you guys. And it was a year and a half ago where we were in Savannah and went to that karaoke place and got everyone kicked out. I remember I was with you on kind of like a balcony situation Uh and we were just overlooking everyone else doing karaoke and just watching it in not slow motion. I think you're relatively sober as well. Watching everybody super hammered 
just taking over this bar's karaoke thing, and then the bar, be- uh, the karaoke people becoming very upset and kicking everybody out of the bar. Yeah, I was uh, for being too good. That was what the that's what the problem was. I was uh yeah, I was very sober. I was I was going to be driving us, so uh, I was yeah, sort of in an observation deck area, uh, watching things go down. And the the people that were running the you know the karaoke show, I mean, you could tell that they had their thing and they didn't want anybody coming in and messing it up, you know. And uh, they they were looking for reasons to get mad. Uh, they got mad at uh, yeah. a, a friend of ours because a microphone fell, but it was because it was literally on this mic stand that like you could physically, you, like you could see that it was loose and like the, like it wasn't screwed on properly. Yeah. Like it wasn't his fault. And yeah, it just escalated yeah. into this and like almost a, a, a bar brawl. And, uh, and then kind of, yeah. kind of out of the bartenders were on our side. Yeah. 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 The, the bartenders were really they were cool. like, sorry, but they were very Southern and very like, yeah. They were just like, oh, sorry, y'all. And we were like, well, why don't you stop it from kicking everybody out? You were going to make hundreds, <laughs> if not a thousand dollars, and you just lost it all because uh, the guys running the karaoke thing who you think that if 20 or so professional musicians came into a karaoke night and started to kill it and have a lot of fun, it would be the highlight of your karaoke night for the week. This was like a Tuesday night, but I get it. There's like, you know, that's their territory. Like you said, it. they're like, fuck these kids, get them out of here. Yeah. <laughs> but that's yeah. just one in a long series of things that you guys put together we do i mean we we're lucky to get to travel we're lucky to get to you know like for for me personally i i grew up in scranton once a year i would go to the jersey shore that that was the extent of my mm-hmm. of my travel you know and then i'm you know about to turn 18 and we're like oh we just got asked to do a tour in canada i'm like amazing <laughs> Like we just got asked to play some shows in England. Like, okay, yeah, I guess I'll get a, a real passport. Like, I've never flown before. Like, what is, what is this? Like, uh, all of these experiences were were so new to me. From uh, and being in a band is is what gave them to me. So like, I've always just tried to make make the most out of traveling and and try to you know have a good time wherever we go and try to really experience like the different cities that we get to spend time in. Absolutely. That's, that's a, a, such a beautiful outlook on it. And we're in the same boat. I mean, when we flew to uh, meet up with Epitaph to decide whether or not we were going to sign with them, it had, it was the first plane that some of us were on. And that was, you know, in a band going to LA to smoke cigars in like a parking lot. You know, we just saw a picture <laughs> of it. It was 10 years ago the other day, or it wasn't full 10 years, I don't think, but it, it might've been. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just crazy to, to, to think about that. We all came from Scranton. We would go to the Jersey shore uh, we went to Florida one time when I was a kid, uh, but then now we get to go to every, you know, these small towns in the countryside of France on an off day. Like, it's fucking crazy. A bunch of people from Scranton get to do this from making music. One of my favorite times is when we <laughs> when we were playing with you guys in Scotland in Edinburgh. I think it was maybe the first time that we had played Edinburgh. I could be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. It was during the Fringe Festival. We were playing in, like, you know, a dungeon pub uh-huh. and we figured out how to get rock 107 which is the scranton alternative rock station long running staple of our childhood and adulthood on some kind of like streaming phone and we were trying to call in and get them to do uh you know play requests for us while we're in scotland which is is fucking crazy <laughs> we, yes we we also went to some very strange skull bar and drank absinthe 
later that <laughs> yeah, night. Yeah, we did. <laughs> we did all in a quest, which was, a, I, I always thought this was a funny quest. We were running around trying to find the comedy late show. Yes. There's a bunch of famous comedians that are doing the Fringe Festival. So we're running around asking all these Scottish people, like, where's the late show? Where's the late show? And they're all just, you know, screaming back to us over whatever music is playing as part of the sidebar thing of all these different places in this cavernous dungeon. And eventually <laughs> some guy's like, yeah, there is no late show. There's no late show. And we're like, what the fuck? And by the end of it, we found out that they were thought we were all asking where the light show was. <laughs> but we're like, where's the laser light show? No. And then we went and found the late show eventually. And it was bad. Like that's one of those situations in comedy. I don't know how stand-up comedians do this. I don't think I could get up in front of a crowd and tell jokes and then need them to laugh at me. It would be the most brutal, <laughs> heart-wrenching experience ever. But the comedian was up and wasn't good. And we came in like 12 hammered strong at a Scott in Scotland and then like interrupted their set. And then it, we left in the middle of it. So I've, I want to apologize to that comedian. I hope they re- refined their craft. <laughs> <laughs> god damn all right man thank you so much for coming on i i really appreciate it uh it's been a great opportunity to talk to you as a fan as a friend uh this is you know like a cop-out question but what do you see on the horizon for you guys now that the record is out is there any particular place that you still want to go to are there any kind of moves that you want to make with the band um, which is, I think it's always a hard question for, for, for us in my own mind as well. Cause how big is big enough? How, um, what kind of career do you want to have? You know, like we yeah. can both make a living on our band. It's fucking incredible, but there's always that eating notion a little bit of like, well, what, where does this roll to next? And, and do I have to worry about it? Yeah. I mean, w- you know, we, we've been lucky to get to that point where, where we can make a living making this our main focus, uh, it's it's a delicate thing like it's barely above that you know above that level where it's sustainable you know and for us it's always it's always been sort of a slow a slow build you know um never going to be the biggest band out there but always going to keep making the music that we want to make and following the opportunities that we have um so it it just keeps us on our toes and and obviously keeps us grateful for for what we do get to do um there's there's definitely more that we want to accomplish like we want to we want to play more festivals we want to travel more we want to you know go places that we haven't been like we've never played in new zealand you know we've we've never played in southeast asia um we've done pretty minimal touring in in you know most like in in mexico in in canada like uh, all of our all of our foreign tours have been fairly, uh, you know, fairly limited, fairly, you know, major cities only. And uh, it would be really interesting to kind of see like the, yeah. What's the Scranton of uh, France? What's the, what's the, the random little small town, you know? Um, So I think just, yeah. Seeing more of seeing more of the world is always, you know, high on the priority list and, and going to places that we haven't been before. Um, so I think, hell yes, I think, yeah, just traveling more. Like I said, New, New Zealand is, is maybe on a, a big one on my list of places that I want to see. Um, you know, it, it would just be nice to get, yeah, to get to that point where, you know, we can, we can sustain what we're doing and be able to pay the bills, be able to make the music and art that we want to make. And, uh, you know, it, it, 
it just just would be nice like to to feel like making a living playing music isn't such an anomaly you know uh yeah that it should be doable like it should be it should be doable and you know there shouldn't be all these obstacles to it like how am i going to get health care how am i going to pay rent or pay a mortgage or how am i going to you know further myself as an individual but also like devote all of this time to touring and, and traveling um so i, I think it's just totally yeah, about how- i'm uh, i don't want to get into the weeds on it but yeah oh, sorry i was gonna say i didn't want to get into the weeds about it but i'm very optimistic about the current um universal basic income framework that's been built i feel like that we will be able to uh you know reward artists and musicians in a structural way going into the future where we value because everyone values art and music so much like they they listen to records it, it feels so good that politicians use it for their campaigns companies use it to sell their bullshit. We, we, we need it as a society, but the, so it's rewarded in that regard, but it is not regarded, sorry, regarded with a paycheck. Uh, so hopefully some of those things can exist so that people will have more time to be able to do them, but who fucking knows? <laughs> yeah. It's easy to get it's easy to get in the weeds on this because you know, I, I'm there's, I have so much to be grateful for. I, I can pay the bills being in a band, you know, uh, and I, I shouldn't, there, there shouldn't be much for me to complain of uh, about you know with regards to that but you know it, it is a delicate balance it sure. could be taken away at any moment there's you know uh there's not a lot of of uh you know safety in it there's not a lot like it's 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 a it's a sort of a scary thing at all times you, you have to be like really aware of it because you're you're commodifying art you're, you're making it yeah. into this thing where you have to try to like market and sell it and that doesn't feel natural um no so, so much of the problems is that people who are good at marketing and selling come in and say, I will sell and market this for you. And then they take an enormous amount of the uh, <laughs> cash money that gets generated by it. And you're like, whoa, 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 what happened? I don't, I don't understand this. Why is this contract 29 pages long? <laughs> what, uh, what is it that you have to, to, to explain here? Yeah. I, um, it's, it's easy for that stuff to, to kind of get, get away from like the, the actual purpose of why, it why you got into it why you started doing it yes so. yeah dude it colors it and Ugh. it can become very very dangerous so basically you're saying you you uh you guys aren't gonna mint your entire next album as an nft on the ethereum <laughs> blockchain and then auction it off at christie's that's not that's not the plan i don't understand i need to do a little more research uh <laughs> that might be where it's headed though who knows it may be we'll see uh i feel like the way that you're able to keep custody of song files through some of the technology that's used by those things is, is is a sure thing to come. I mean, Spotify has had the technology for five, six, seven years. So we'll see if it gets implemented, but right now it's really funny because most of the news headlines regarding um, this digitalization of art are just like somebody sell, sold a, a, a picture of a pop tart for six million dollars but it wasn't really a picture of a pop tart it's yeah it's just a lot of it is just a speculative <laughs> asset talk instead of being like well no there's actually you can keep track of things and, and that kind of stuff but man thank you so very much for coming on again uh, i really appreciate it i would ask you to come on again that'd be fucking awesome i, I appreciate i mean thank, thank you so much for having me i'm sure you know we kind of scratched the surface on a few things so i, I would love i would love to keep you know keep the conversation going sometime 
Exactly. Love you to death, brother. Thank you so much. And Love I'll you too, uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. And there we have it. Ladies and gentlemen, the ever so talented and uh, fantastic and brilliant man from Scranton and Philadelphia, my cousin, the great Ben Walsh from Tiger's Jaw. You can listen to I Won't Care How You Remember Me wherever you listen to records. That is Tiger's Jaw's newest record that's out now. Uh, big shout out. Thank you to Beth Ann Downey for producing the podcast. And thank you to Queen Jesus for the intro song, which I uh, fucking love. I hope, uh, Pat Breyer, that you're out there having a, a fantastic time of things. Until next time, so long. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.